All right. Good morning, Joy Church. Hey, how's everybody doing today? As you guys know, if you've been here for any length of time at Joy Church in college football, I love to support my team, the Oregon State Beavers. <laughs> Go Beavers, man. There's another team in Oregon, the Ducks. I, did they play yesterday? I don't know. I'm not like a super invested Duck fan, so I just, um, yeah, I just, I'm a casual Duck fan. Did we lose? I don't know. I, I haven't heard. Oh, no, let me, let me come clean. I pay money for an Oregon Ducks uh, message board every, every month, and um, that hurt, you know. I mean, that hurt. I've never been taken behind a woodshed and beaten, but that I, now I have. <laughs> and, uh, man, just uh, thank God we get to play another team next week and not whatever demonic force and possession came upon Georgia yesterday. But uh, what I love about college football season is um, – you get to, no matter what happens on Saturday, on Sunday, you get to wake up and go to church and participate, yes, in the victory of God's kingdom, in the proclamation of worship and praise. You get to be with your brothers and sisters. And today, my friends, we have free t-shirts because it is I Love My Church Sunday. Yes, we get free t-shirts. That's exciting. I didn't wear mine today, but Carl, would you stand up? We need you to model that, please. Look at that. Yeah. You get one of those. Ow! You get one of those. Um... Sorry, I don't mean any cause anybody to stumble, but you know, just he's he's taken, he's taken, ladies. Uh, Tony, right? Lock him down, yeah. Um, but uh, free T-shirt Sunday, and we have a, a barbecue as well after church today. So stick around for that parking lot party. We've got, I think, free hot dogs, and the youth are doing a, a fundraiser if you want to uh, buy a hamburger, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a bounce house and a jousting thing which you will not find me in. I'm at that stage in my life where I want to eat unhealthy food and watch other people do bodily harm on TV, like football, all that kind of stuff. So I'll be watching you, cheering you on with a hot dog in my mouth, like, well, good job. Uh, but we're, we, we're talking about, I've been in a series, I love my church and I love my city, I-L-M-C. It stands for both of these things because we believe uh, that we are saved and brought out of isolation and in our sin, and we're put not just into a solo now relationship with God, but we're brought into the family of God, we're brought into community, and that there's purpose and meaning and, and, and something about gathering together as the, the visible, tangible representation of Christ and his kingdom on this planet. And so we say, I love my church. We believe in participating in the, the life of a church. Joy Church is not a church for spectators. You can come in as a spectator, but, uh, but we want you to be a participant. You know, this, we don't want anybody in the shallow end of the pool. We want everybody going deep uh, in relationship and fellowship and growing in their gifts and talents and abilities and callings because, number one, God wants to use other people here to do something unique in you, but he's also going to use you to do something in someone else. And so we are a family. This is a great place to be. So we say, I love my church, but also out of that, we say, I love my city. Because as a church, God has called us into purpose and mission to make a difference in our generation while we are sucking oxygen on planet Earth, that God has placed unique giftings and abilities and calling in each and every one of us. And he's taken us again out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And now we get to proclaim God's goodness in our time and in our, our season. And that means here in Eugene and Springfield. That means here in Lane County. That means in our area that God has placed us in, this is our mission field. So whether you go to work as a pastor or you go to work as a plumber, you have sacred purpose, spiritual purpose that God has placed in you to make disciples and make a difference. Amen? 
And so we, we carry the heart of God into our city. We proclaim the gospel in both word and in deed. We serve our community. We love our community. And that's why at Joy Church, we, we, we don't just say, I love my church. It's I love my church and I love my city. These two things go together. It's the family and it's also the function. It's the mission and purpose together. And we're finishing up that series today. And what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to study Luke chapter 15 and look into three stories that Jesus tells that I think you're probably familiar with, at least on a surface level, but I believe God will give you something new and fresh today out of his word, because we're going to really unpack this, what Jesus was saying, and not just what we can kind of take from it in 2022 in our modern context and, and modern era and our understanding of this, but how Jesus' original listeners would have taken what he was saying. And what we have here is a very clear depiction of the heart of God. If you want to write this down on your notes or whatever, you can write down one word. It's the word lost. And I think this word really sums up this chapter because Jesus tells three stories about lost things and expresses the heart of God so beautifully through these three stories. Now, Luke chapter 15, or Luke, the book of Luke was written by, wait for it, Luke. Anybody, were you surprised or were you? No, it was kind of on the nose. Luke was a physician and uh, Luke was actually a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So he went on some of the missionary journeys. And Luke actually was used by the Lord to write two books out of the Bible. Some people don't know this, but Luke the physician actually wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is the story of Jesus. But Luke also wrote a, a second book called Acts. A-C-T-S. Sounds like I'm saying A-X-E, Acts, but it's just how I talk. But anyways, Acts of the Apostles. And Luke, the Gospel of Luke is given to establish the character of Jesus and the heart of God and the ministry of Jesus and get to know who Jesus was and is and what he claimed and, and said and who he was and, and, and then what the church did as a result of that. Right before we went into the pandemic, we did a series, which I'd encourage you to go back on YouTube and check out. I think the devil literally attacked the entire world with COVID just because of how awesome that series was. He was trying to end it. I'm kidding. That's, I'm teasing. But we did a series on the book of Acts called Peculiar, Peculiar People. Anybody remember that? Peculiar People. And we talked about what God uh, was doing in the church both then and now. And so you see that in the book of Acts. So Luke, the physician, writes the book of Luke. And then the book of Acts, and they're really two parts of, of one continuous story. So in the Bible, when you look at the Gospels, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But really, John was kind of thrown in there, uh, you know, put in that order. Maybe, we, maybe if, they'd, if I had been in charge and I wasn't, nobody asked me, but I would have probably put Luke and Acts together. So hopefully that gives you a little backdrop on this. And I'm also kidding. Some of you are like, man, he's already made jokes about the devil and rewriting the Bible and everything. This isn't the church for me. Well, there are donuts and we're giving away t-shirts. So please stick with us. <laughs> stick with it. All right. Luke chapter 15, it starts this way in verse one. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. <gasps> this is where we, we gasp, you know, <gasps> even eating with them. And we find in the first two verses here, the reason for this entire chapter. This is the setup. And let's talk about what's happening here. Maybe it's not immediately clear in our day and age, though I don't think we're overly fond of tax collectors. I don't know. Maybe we have some IRS people here. And if so, I didn't do it. But uh, we're not overly fond of tax collectors, but at this time in history, tax collectors were basically like mafiosa. 
because what they were doing is, specifically in the, in the nation of Israel here in this province of Judea, they're ruled by the Roman Empire, and the tax collectors of this day essentially have to give Rome whatever tribute, they have to collect a certain amount and give it to Rome, and then whatever they can kind of take for themselves on top of what they collected for Rome's cut was theirs. And so often they were shaking people down, they were taking more than their fair share, and tax collectors are often just treated like they're the lowest form of human garbage, right, in this time period. And they were known to be, essentially, not only were they kind of turning turncoats against their own people, working for the evil Roman Empire, as these people would perceive it, but also they were, were thieves, and it was known that they were abusing their place of power. And here's Jesus, who's supposedly supposed to, you know, bring in God's kingdom, and he's like, He's, you know, God in the flesh and everybody's listening to him, but he's associating with tax collectors and that really surprised the Pharisees. But not only tax collectors, he was there with notorious sinners. We know Jesus ate with prostitutes and uh, just deeply sinful people that everyone in kind of the goody two-shoes community would have been like, why is he hanging out with them? Now let's look at the other audience that we see here. We have Pharisees and teachers of religious law. Now in our day and age, the word Pharisee is often used as a pejorative term. Have you ever been called a Pharisee? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, me too. There's two of us in the room. Yeah. And oftentimes people will say, well, stop being such a Pharisee. You're like, you know, maybe we shouldn't rob this bank. You're a Pharisee. No, that's just being a good person. Okay. But anyways, Pharisee is used as kind of a pejorative term, but it's a little unfair. And I'll tell you why. The word Pharisee actually comes from a root word that means purity. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day and age, they weren't just all religious bigots and jerks. They were actually people that were attempting to take God's law seriously and and live it out in their day-to-day life. Now, a lot of the Pharisees went too far with this. They began to put the law above a relationship with God. They were missing the heart, and Jesus deals with these people. But I want you to understand that in this group of people, it's not like Pharisees are just the irredeemable, horrible, bad people. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that a lot of these Pharisees end up becoming the foundation of the church. A lot of these people, probably even some of Jesus' disciples, were Pharisees that that became Christians, followers of Jesus, or as they would call it 2,000 years ago, followers of the way. And they began to follow Jesus because they had a, a right heart, but they were missing the point. So don't just see the word Pharisee and immediately think whenever you read it in the Bible, oh, this means a totally religious jerk. It actually means somebody who's trying to take God's laws seriously, but had kind of missed the point. Are you with me? So Luke tells us, okay, here's two audiences. Jesus is with tax collectors, notorious sinners, and, uh, and he's with these Pharisees and teachers of religious law. And here are the religious people, the, the, the churchgoers, if you will, or those taking God's law seriously. And they're beginning to complain because here's Jesus and he's with these sinful people. And Jesus responds to this because what he's going to do is clarify God's heart and God's character about this this complaint that's coming against him, okay? And how he responds to this in his wonderful Jesus way is he doesn't just immediately go, you're wrong, and here's what's true. He goes and he tells stories. He tells three stories, or what we call parables, to illustrate Uh, Not just to give clarity to this, but also to get the listeners both then and now to think through, where do I fit in this story? What does this mean for me? And how does this reshape my thinking? See, one of the things you're going to find with the Bible is that God is not just interested in telling you what's true. He wants to put the truth on the inside of you so that you live it out. Let me say that again. God is not just interested in giving you all the answers to the test. Okay, the four plus four is eight. Eight plus eight is 16. 16 times 345 is, I have no idea. I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. But anyways, 
God is not trying to just give you the right answers to the test so that you fully understand the law. What he wants to do, as scripture says, is write his law on your heart. So he wants to transform you from the inside out so that not only do you know what is right, but you want what is right because your heart is transformed. This is a very different type of a thing. Now, any of us that have kids, we understand this. I don't want my children just to know the rules. I want them to want to live as a righteous man or woman and a good part of society and as someone who's making a difference with their life. I want them to experience peace and joy, but understanding we live in a broken world that is gonna cause pain and they're gonna have failures and all this kind of stuff. I don't want to just give them information. I want them to become uh, who God has made them to be. And so Jesus teaches these stories, not just to give us the answers to the test, as it were, but to give us the ability to think the right way about God, who God is, and how God thinks about people. And so he's dealing with these two audiences. He tells three stories. There are three different protagonists in these three stories. The first is a shepherd. The second is a woman. And the third is a story about a father and two sons. And we're going to talk about who the protagonist is in each of these. It's a little bit clearer in the first two than it is in the third. What Jesus also does in these stories is he builds the value of that which is lost. And so in the first story, as we're going to see, there is one sheep out of a hundred that is lost. In the second story, it's one coin out of 10. And in the third, it's one son out of two. And so the stakes are are being raised every time Jesus tells one of these stories. In Luke chapter 15, verse three, we get the story. Jesus says, Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And he says this, in the same way, he's linking this story and he's saying, now you're going to get the meaning of the story. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus begins to give us the heart of God. God doesn't like to lose. God doesn't like to lose at all. In fact, if God had 100 sheep and only one out of 100 was missing, he would leave the 99 and go pursue the one. We love this idea, right? We sing about it in church. We sing our song, Reckless Love of God, and he leaves the 99, you know, and he chases the one. And, and on that Sunday when the band sings the song, I'm always like, that's me. I'm the one. You're the 99. <laughs> he, he was chasing after me. I was laughing about our worship songs we sing sometimes, you know, not just in, at Joy Church, but all across Christendom and 2022. They're all very individualistic. You know, we were singing a song in the car on the way to church, and I'm like, I just can't imagine, like in the Old Testament, them singing like, your love is wild, your love. And I was like, this is very, like, modern. Anyways, moving on. Jesus says if God has 100 sheep, he, he, he wants, he's, he's not just excited about, about ratios and percentages, Oh, 99% success rate. It's kind of like with my kids. I have three kids, Evie, Jack, and Penny. And, you know, I'm not taking my kids to Disneyland because I find it to be worse tax collection than the tax collectors in Jesus' day and age. You know, they're like, here's a $45 corn dog. You know, pay the mouse or put a, you know. It's like literally propaganda. They're like, here's Disney Plus. Come to Disneyland, you know. Anyways, I'm a little resistant. I know many of you are Disney lovers and the Lord will speak to you. But anyways... I'm just picking a fight because I know everybody loves Disney. He's picking a fight. So if I went to Disneyland, I wouldn't be stoked if we left and Bethany's like, hey, where's Jack? And I'm like, I don't know. 
probably back in Disneyland. But, but babe, two out of three kids ain't bad. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. We, we, don't, we don't go, oh, you know, 75% of my children, uh, let's be more serious. You know, two out of my three kids are, are doing well. They're healthy and happy and loving Jesus, but one is a complete mess. We, we're not okay with that. How many of you that have kids know what I'm talking about? If you have three kids, what's your success rate that you'd like to have in, in, their, in their success, in their joy, in their upbringing? A hundred percent. And so why would God, our Heavenly Father, be any less concerned with 100% success. Therefore, we see the heart of God is to go and pursue that which is lost, but also to throw a party. And this is another thing, because in every one of these stories, we see a big celebration that not only is God about chasing after the lost and about bringing people into community, but he also is, it's also supposed to be a celebration when that happens, because again, it's the point of what we're up to in the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on again. He, he tells another story in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call on her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Again, don't miss the party. There's joy not only on earth, but in heaven, when the sheep is found, when the coin is found. Now, you might be thinking about this story, and why, why would she be so worried about a silver coin? I mean, our silver coins are kind of like, what, 25 cents, 10 cents? What's actually being spoken of here is a day's wages. So she has 10 days' wages to her name, 10 silver coins, 10 days' wages, and she loses a tenth of her net worth. How many of you would be a little upset if a tenth of your net worth was somewhere uh, I would. Is everybody rich in here? Like, I would be concerned. <laughs> Everyone's like, nah, it's good. Well, if you're not concerned, go ahead and leave it on the floor and our ushers will take care of um, <laughs> searching after. <laughs> uh, you're like, that's a bad joke in church. I know. But the problem is this is like, it's like live, you know, we don't get to take it back. Whatever I said in that moment, I have to try to justify after the fact. So um, this woman loses a tenth of her income. She loses a tenth of her, of her net worth. And this, this time period in, in Israel, the houses were not like our houses. They weren't nice, uh, wooden, you know, open, spacious. It's got an open floor plan. It wasn't like that. You had basically stone. When I was in Israel in this uh, city in Capernaum, uh, there was, there was uh, or Caesarea rather, no, Capernaum, sorry. There was these stone houses. There's no windows. It's one small opening. And the floors typically were rough uh, stones that were kind of placed you know, to get you up off out of the mud or the dirt or whatever, maybe even so rainwater could flow through underneath. And so if she lost this coin, it's probably down in the crevices between rocks. She has a little uh, oil lamp and she's searching for it. It's, it's missing. So this is the picture that Jesus is giving. And she's looking for this coin. When she finds it, she rejoices. And so Jesus ups the stakes. One out of a hundred, now one out of 10. And now we go to the third story. Now, Jesus didn't tell three stories because he liked to hear himself talk. He tells three stories to go one, two, three. This is meaningful. It matters. Get the point, okay? So he's using emphasis in the repetition. And he tells the third story. He says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. The first story is about a shepherd and the second one's about this woman, but now we get a lot more detail, a lot more personification or personal details about these people. And what Jesus' listeners at this time in history would have heard him say when, he, when, they, when they get to this part of the story where you have this son is they would have thought, man, what a despicable kid, what a despicable young man that he abused his father's good will and nature and took his inheritance early and he went and wasted it. And now he's, he's as, a, as a Jewish uh, young man, is now feeding pigs and even wanting to eat what they eat. And, and what Jesus' listeners would have heard Jesus saying is, he is at absolute rock bottom. You don't get any lower than this. He has abused his relationship with his father. He's messed it up. He has wasted his inheritance. And now he's, he's in this place with pigs. And so this is like, want, want, want. This is like the, the, the depth of despair. This is the bad part. Jesus goes on. He says, when the son finally comes to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And again, number three, the party began. So the party began. What an incredible story about restoration and forgiveness. Now, this is interesting because how many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son before? How many of you feel like you get it? You're grateful that we have a God, as Jesus depicts the Father, that is waiting for us as the repentant sinners, as we come up the road, that he doesn't just let us sulk in and kind of bear our shame, but he runs to us, he embraces us. And the story, the father gives him this robe and this ring, and we'll talk about that in a second. This is kind of how we see the story. But I want to make a point today that this isn't actually how Jesus' listeners would have received this story, because the protagonist in this story is not the son. The protagonist is not the younger prodigal son, nor the older son, who we'll get to see more detail about in just a second. The protagonist of this story is actually the father, and while we would look at this story and say, man, isn't it awesome that the father is there, he's gracious and he's, he's forgiving and he's bringing the son in, Jesus' listeners actually would have had a different response to this. And I'll talk about that in a second. But here's what we actually see in this story. The father is not just, you know, hiding out or whatever and the son, uh, it, you know, kind of slinks in and then he's like, oh, your son's here. He's actually waiting and watching. So again, we have this idea that the father representing God in the story does not, he's not okay with a lost son. He's not passively sort of accepting this reality. He's looking, he's watching, he's waiting. And, and the minute his son comes over the horizon, he runs out, he embraces him, he grasps, grabs him, he, he kisses him. There's intimacy. And, and, and he's immediately uh, restoring a relationship. But then here's what happens. 
Not only does he restore relationship and, and show that he loves his son, but he says, quick, bring the robe, the finest robe, and put it around him. Now, we don't really understand this, but Jesus' listeners would understand this, and you have to go back into the biblical culture to understand that the robe was a sign of the father's favor. If you look at the story of Jacob and his son Joseph, you guys remember Joseph's multicolored, technical colored coat of dreams or whatever it's called? I don't remember that, but Joseph had a coat of many colors, right? In the story of Jacob and Joseph, Jacob, wanting to show that Joseph is his truly favored son, gives him this coat of many colors. It's this finest robe. And that was a symbol in, in ancient times of, of the favor that was on you. There's another story in the Bible about this. When um, the king of Persia wants to honor somebody and he wants to honor this man Mordecai, what does he do? He puts his finest robe, the king's robe, on him and he parades him in front of everybody and he gets to wear the king's robe and they yell out, this is Mordecai whom the king delights in, who the king wants to show favor to. And so what Jesus' listeners would see is not only does the father embrace and restore relationship, but he actually places the, the cloak, the coat of his favor around his son. Listen, if you're here today and you have walked away from your father and maybe you've wasted what God gave you, you, you took what your mama gave you and, and you shook that sucker and you wasted it. You know what I mean? You, like my dad always said that, shake what your mama gave you. I don't know if he got it from a weird song or something, but it's embedded in my psyche. But you took what God gave you, your gifts, your talents, your abilities. You took the breath in your lungs. You took the life that he gave you and you went and you wasted it. That's what the word prodigal means is wasteful living. Maybe you gave your life to drugs. Maybe you gave it to relationships. Maybe you gave it to career pursuits or alcoholism or whatever you gave it to. But many people have taken what their father gave them, this life that they have, and they've lived it in waste. And you might be saying like the son, well, I guess I'm here because I just want to be a good servant. I just want to try to do the right thing by God. And maybe he'll let me kind of hang out in the corner. And that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is that he was watching for you before you were ever watching for him. And when you came up the path on this day, he embraces you by his Holy Spirit. And now he's putting the cloak of his favor around you so that everyone that sees you will not see your shame and your brokenness, but will now see the sign of God's favor upon your life. And so Jesus' listeners are like, whoa, that's a little bit extreme. And then he, he says, not only do I put the cloak of my favor on my son, but I want you to give him the ring. Now, we wear wedding rings to show that we're married, and maybe you have other rings to demonstrate your wealth or whatever, or you just like rings. But at this time in history, a ring, specifically this ring that we're talking about, is probably a signet ring and it was the sign or the seal, literally the seal. They would use the signet ring in wax to, to seal a document. And it was the sign of authority. And it gave you the right to, to do business in the name of whoever's ring that signet represented. And so what the father is giving his son, restoring to him, is that, man, you left. You took your inheritance. Now I love you. I've run out and I've hugged you and embraced you. I've put the cloak of my favor on you. But I'm also giving you the ring to restore your sonship that you can now do business again in my name. I mean, if you think about this as a Christian in 2022, that as sinners, when we come back to the Lord, he is embracing us. He's wrapping us in his favor. I mean, that's kind of amazing thought right there. But not only that, he's placing a ring of authority on you that says you can now do business in my name. What kind of business would you want to do in the name of the Lord? How about 
speaking to a city that is lost and broken and destitute and saying, I proclaim hope and joy that every step I take as an ambassador of the kingdom of God is carrying with me hope and love and, and life and joy. And when I walk into the room, demons flee, not because I'm so awesome, but because the same spirit that, dwell, that rose Christ from the dead dwells on the inside of me. And wherever I go, I'm bringing life and the joy of the kingdom of God. And I'm not here to promote a political party. I'm here to promote the kingdom of God. And I'm not here to promote an agenda. I'm here to promote the gospel. And the ring on your finger says you have authority. You have influence. You have now been restored to a place where you can do business in your father's name. And so the father restores the ring. But then the father goes farther. He says, go get sandals. Now, shoes are great. I love me some Nikes. Come on, get some good kicks. They're not for running. They're not for hiking. They're literally for writing sermons in. Or preaching. This is the most athletic thing I do every week, in case you're wondering. I, one time I did a kick on stage and I pulled my muscle and I was like, I need to work out more. But this isn't just footwear for footwear's sake. These sandals have a deep connotation as well. In the Bible, uncovered feet often represent sexual shame. And I'm not going to go into that. That's the podcast version of the sermon. You can ask me about it, but there's a bunch of deep stuff on this. But, the, but the, his, his sexual promiscuity and the fact he didn't have shoes, there's probably some connotations to this. And the sandals that cover his feet cover his shame, but also protect his feet from hot stones and dirty and dirt and all that kind of stuff. There's a practical purpose here too. But the sandals that go on his feet are to cover his shame. So it's like, think about what the father's doing for his son. Every place of brokenness, every place of shame, every place of rebellion is being, is being turned around. When you get back with your father, he's not trying to destroy you and rip you down to another level. He's bringing back your dignity. So one of the greatest lies that comes against the gospel is that the gospel will reduce your humanity. Well, this is, if I have to surrender my sexuality to the cross and surrender it to Christ, that means I'm less of who, I'm, who I really am. No, when you come to Jesus, your dignity can only be restored and be made more of who you were made to be. Oh my gosh, that's a good message. I'm not going to preach that today. The reality is the gospel always lifts people into dignity, restores their dignity, restores their personhood, restores relationship with God. And this is what Jesus says the Father does. And it's powerful. And then they celebrate with a feast. But did you know that all that powerful stuff that we just said and talked about is not the point of the story? Because this isn't a story about a son. It's not a story about a prodigal son and it's not a story about an older son. It's actually a story about a father. Because as excited as we get about the robe and the sandals and the ring, Jesus' listeners would have had actually the opposite feeling about it. Not just the religious people, but even the sinners. They would have been like, well, that's not fair. That, wait, hold on a second. Wait a second. That, that, wait, wait, he shouldn't do that. that. That's too much. The father's going too far and I'll tell you why. You see, we live in a culture a Western civilization has been shaped by the values of humility and sacrifice and lowering oneself to elevate another because of the influence of Jesus Christ and specifically the event of the crucifixion and what that did to Christians and how they then impacted society. Because if you go back 2,000 years into the Roman Empire, they didn't have the values of human dignity. They did not value humility. They did not value compassion. They did not value um, laying down one's life. To get a, a really good, deep treatment of this, I would encourage you to read a book by a man named John Dixon. It's called Humilitas. And he explains the cruciform shape of Western civilization that 
through the lens of the cross, our entire worldview and ethical imperatives and values and what we as a civilization, whether you're Christian or not, your, your, your Western civilization context that we all live in, again, whether you're a Christian or not, has been shaped by what Jesus did at the cross so that we now value humility. We now value a father that would embrace the son. And we cheer when we hear about the, the parties and we cheer when we hear about the, uh, the, the sandals and the robe and the ring. But Jesus' listeners wouldn't have cheered because they weren't part of a cruciform uh, influenced by the cross and influenced by humility and influenced by a savior society. They lived in an honor-shame culture. Now you have to go pretty far afield. You have to leave the Western world. So you can't go to like Western Europe or any place. You have to probably go to East Asia, maybe into deep, deep places in the Middle East to find in, in, in existence today honor-shame cultures. But in an honor-shame culture, it is not valued it is not ethically superior to forgive. It is not ethically superior to lay your life down. And it's actually shameful for a father to embrace a wayward son. Because what you have in an honor-shame culture is that if anybody lets down the standard, then the standard gets inv invalidated. And it makes sense from a human perspective, but this is an honor-shame culture. Are you tracking with me? And so Jesus' listeners are hearing this through the paradigm, the lens of an honor-shame culture, and what they're seeing is Jesus utterly butcher the character of God. Both the sinners and the Pharisees would have taken it the same way. God is supposed to uphold the right standards. He's supposed to do the right thing. He's supposed to demand that all sinners pay what's their rightful due. And this son, what a worthless son. They would have hated this guy, I'm telling you. If you take this through an honor-shame paradigm, they would have just thought, this prodigal son is the absolute worst you ever watched a TV show and you just hated one of the characters? You were like, they are the worst. One of the shows that Bethany and I like, don't, don't um, judge me for this, but it's Stranger Things. And in Stranger Things, there was this, this kid named Steve Harrington. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Steve? I love Steve. I love Steve. Steve was actually written into the show to be an irredeemably bad character. But he was too good. Like, he was just too fun and winsome, whatever. And so they had to, like, write him into the show as a good guy. But there are... In shows, um, these characters that you just love to hate, and they're made that way, and Jesus was writing a character that his listeners would absolutely love to hate. This son, he's born with the silver spoon. He has an inheritance. His father has, he has this whole you know, farm or field or whatever that's there, and he gives him this inheritance, and this rotten little twerp goes off and he's with prostitutes and oh he's so bad and he sucks he just stinks you know and he goes and now he's even with the pigs and they're just like he's the worst and so all of a sudden Jesus says but when he comes back the father doesn't say well I'm holding you to account I taught you what was right and this is what's right and you're gonna pay he actually does all those beautiful things that I just shared with you and yet we still haven't come to the point of the story because we have in this writing that Luke gives us and what Jesus was actually doing in telling these stories, something that scholars call an inclusio. An inclusio is just a fancy way of saying a bracket. And what we have is we have verse one and two, and then we have three stories, and then we have verse 25. And those three stories are bracketed off. And, and this is what Jesus does now. He goes into this word and he says, this is where we get the real meaning of all of it, reflecting back to what was being, he was being questioned about in the first two verses. We get this incredible connecting word, meanwhile, 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 after all that had been said, now put yourself in Jesus' listener shoes. They're like, this kid stinks. 
And that father is the worst father. What an embarrassment. How shameful. Meanwhile, the older son, and they're like, oh yeah, now we're going to learn how you earn blessing, how you earn favor, how, how, you know, and, and Jesus is setting this up, completely setting it up. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. Oh, look at that. The younger son's off wasting the father's money, and here's the older son diligently working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Do you think Jesus' religious listeners are going, (laughs) maybe he's talking about us. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when, listen to this, when this son of yours, it's not my brother, us and them, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. He's saying what Jesus' listeners are thinking. And you might be thinking, oh, it's only the Pharisees that are thinking this. It's not. It's all of them, including the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the notorious sinners, because everybody is still playing by one scorecard, and one side thinks they're losers, and the other side thinks they're winners, and Jesus is about to tell everybody they're a loser. Because you think you're playing a game that you're not playing. And man, his words are like a knife that cuts between us and them. That cuts between thinking some of us are right with God and we've earned it and done what we needed to do and others aren't. And his father said to him in verse 31, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. Everything he gave to the younger son was for the older son too. You see, one of the things we have to work on teaching our kids is that when somebody else wins, it doesn't mean you lose. Can I say that again? When somebody else wins, it doesn't mean you lose. And a kingdom perspective is actually there's enough for everyone and abundance for everyone. So we don't have to pull other people down when they succeed. We don't have to pull other people down when God chooses to favor them. We don't have to pull somebody else down when God chooses to do something that looks unfair to you. Do you know that God loves the people you hate? which is really good news because somebody hates you. (laughs) Guarantee if I were to sit down with any of you in this room, maybe a cross section and we were to take our ballots and be like, what do you think about this issue? And I'd be like, well, this is what I think. And you'd be like, (gasps) And, and I might be like, what? You don't agree with me? We don't agree on all the political issues. We don't agree about how to fix problems in society. Heck, I live in the River Road area and we don't even agree about whether to build a $250 million bus lane. And I don't agree with that, by the way. <laughs> but you know what? What's not okay is to hate somebody and throw them out. And here's what the father says. Look, you've stayed by me. Man, I appreciate that. That's great. You stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. 
And this is where the story ties into what was being said originally and where Jesus says, you, you, you're keeping score. Both, both of these audiences are keeping score, but you're both playing the wrong game because those that are notorious sinners and tax collectors and the prostitutes who think I couldn't be forgiven, you need to understand that the father in the story cares about his lost children so much that he's willing to actually diminish his honor, so to speak, and embrace humility, which is actually the most honorable thing you can do. And he's rewriting the ethical imperative of an entire uh, world, which is why in Western civilization, we actually have to be reminded that it wasn't always this way. That if you actually think about it, it doesn't make sense that anyone would ever drop what, who they are, what they're doing in order to elevate someone else. We only value that because of Jesus. And so he's telling the sinners, your father is watching for you and he wants to wrap his favor on you and he wants to cover your shame. And we love that message. Come on, somebody, it's a good one. But the father didn't have one lost son. He had two lost sons. Because one son was there in the field working, but had a broken relationship with God and with his brother. And what Jesus says here implicitly, he later says explicitly through John in, the, in, the, uh, in, in one of the letters that John the apostle writes, where he says, how can you say that you love God and yet hate your brother? You see, Jesus' disciples understood his message that Jesus was doing something different rather than just, here's the, here's the right answers to the test. If you do everything right, you'll be right with God. And the people that do all the wrong stuff are wrong with God. It's not ever, he never changes the standard. He never says sin's not sin, sin doesn't matter. No, what he says is that God's heart is to rescue everyone into relationship. And it's not about earning your way like this older son. He was just as lost as the prodigal son, just in a different way. And so Jesus tells these three stories and a couple points come out very clearly. Number one, God is not okay with losing any kids. Number two, all the kids need the father to save them. And therefore, drop the attitude on both sides. Here's the audience. Imagine these listeners, notorious sinners. They're over there wearing the scarlet mark, you know, probably like with some more tattoos, you know. And here's the religious people. And they both think that they're qualified or disqualified, but for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, wait a second, no. Everybody's lost and God wants to save everybody. God wants to save everybody. Pastor Jake, what's the point of this? Well, there's a lot of points. And I think if you take this message and you read Luke 15 and you take some of the things that we've illuminated today, God will do some work in your heart throughout the rest of this week. Because I think for me, what I want to look at is, do I identify, which son do I identify with? And if I identify more with one or the other, am I not also kind of like the other one? Because I look at my life and I say, you know, there's a lot of places where I've actually walked away from God and wasted things and done bad and sinned and all that. There's other places where I've done the right thing and where it's easy for me to feel justified that someone else is suffering or someone else is in a bad spot. And the reality is Jesus just got us all tied up here in this story. And there's so much depth in it. So I just encourage you to read it. God cares about lost people. God's heart is to redeem and reconcile people into family and we're missing it when we're saying us and them we're missing it when we're creating your in or your out what, what, what we need to do is say all of us need Jesus and all of us can help each other to walk with Jesus a couple of action steps number one I would ask that you would just remember 
If you're a follower of Christ, would you remember that God's heart is for the lost? Literally, you won't understand this church. You will not get it. You'll be like, man, why do we do things the way we do them if you don't understand that, we, that, that the leadership of this church, where it was planted in, what, why we started it, that we're hearing a sound, we're hearing a cry of the people around us in this community that do not know Jesus. And it's not some weird missionary complex overly religious thing like we need to save our city because they're all brought no 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 it's that we hear the heart of a father that isn't okay with statistics and wants everybody to be saved and if you don't hear that you won't get this church you just won't get it you'll be like why do we do this why do we do it this way because we care about lost people because that's the heart of God and so I would encourage you to pray for people that don't know Jesus number two I'd encourage you to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus and number three, I would encourage you to invite people who don't, know, who don't know Jesus into church and into your life. One of the greatest steps you can ever take is to say, God, I'm, I'm available. Because maybe you're hearing me say this and you're like, what does that mean? How do I preach the gospel? How do I share my faith? I don't know. I don't have time to preach that today. What I do know is that if you will open your heart and say, would you give me your heart for lost people? God will give you opportunities and he'll lead you forward. So as we finish today, my prayer for all of us is that we would get a clearer picture of God's heart and recognize he, he doesn't, he does not okay with anybody being lost. And let's not be so fast to think we're in or we're out. Let's, let's all humble ourselves and receive what the father wants to do in our lives. Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? We're going to get ready to head out and have a fun party. Real quick though, every week at Joy Church, we make an opportunity for anybody that wants to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus like, I don't have all the answers in life. But what I do know is that I have found hope and joy and an answer to who I am and what this world is about in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus called people to follow him. And I know that he's still calling people to follow him now. We believe that Jesus died on the cross and he paid for the sins of every person so that we could, our debt that we owed to God could be paid and that he invites you to be restored in relationship. Like your father wants to wrap his favor on you. He wants to put sandals on your feet and cover your shame. He wants to put a ring on your finger. But it starts with an act of humility to say, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And if that's you and you wanna make that step today, I'm just gonna ask that you would raise your hand so I can see. I'm not gonna call you out or embarrass you. Thank you. Pastor Jake, I wanna put my faith in Jesus today. I wanna make that decision to begin this journey of following Jesus. And we're going to pray this prayer together. Anybody else here today that wants to make that decision to follow Jesus today, to give him your life, to follow him as your Lord and to receive him as your savior. Awesome, awesome. Okay, we're going to pray together. Let's repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for giving your life for me, for paying for my sin and making me right with God. I put my faith and trust in you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.